0: Hello and welcome to another episode of PhD Pending, the podcast for early career humanities scholars. My name is Anne and I have a PhD in English Literature. Together we will deep dive into different aspects of PhD life and explore what it really means to do a PhD in the humanities. My guest today is Tizen, an MD-PhD candidate from Toronto, Canada, who's currently completing his PhD on machine learning in medical imaging. He travels quite often for work and has created a side hustle out of the opportunity in the form of a mildly successful YouTube channel, his words, not mine, which is called Vicarious Voyager on which he vlogs and details different airline experiences. So welcome, Tizen, to the pod.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you come from the dark side of the hard STEM sciences, so we might have to clear up a couple of things for our Humanities listeners. So first, I suppose, is how does a joint MD-PhD program work and how long does it take?
1: Um, uh, oh, that's a hard question and there are many answers, but, uh, to be brief, it depends on the country you're in, but, uh, typically here in North America, whether it be the States or Canada, um, if you're really good at school and you get really good grades, you can go straight into a MD plus PhD program, which is a seven to eight year program, depending on how long you want to spend doing your uh, PhD. Uh, I was not part of that cohort of students with the merits coming out of every orifice of their body. I uh, did not get into medical school at first, so I applied for a PhD program at the behest of a friend of mine, Um, and after having been accepted to that, I reapplied for medical school the year after. Uh, Unfortunately, I got in, which led me to the dilemma of uh, having quite a few options, and I chose to finish my PhD, Um, after doing a year of medicine and then going back to finish my MD. So now I'm kind of like a black sheep in the MD-PhD community where I didn't get in based off of my performance, but rather, I don't know, um, late-blooming luck, perhaps. (laughs) But that's typically how it goes.
0: Right, and how many years are you into the program now?
1: Um, So I did one year of my MD. I've done about two and a half years of my PhD. So with this PhD being a four to five year program, uh, that's kind of up in the air right now with the whole coronavirus thing. Um, I'd say I'm about three to four years in, which gives me about three to four years left until I'm done with both.
0: Mm -hmm. So kind of in the middle of getting into that Mm -hmm. first slump and that first motivation Mm -hmm. slump. That we already talked about. G-
1: getting lazy and complacent, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but one part of your PhD and of your research is that you travel quite often, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, I suppose, one of the reasons why you started a YouTube channel to share that. Or can you tell us a bit more about how your YouTube channel yeah. actually came to be?
1: No, absolutely. Um, so, just for a little bit of a premise, uh, because of a lot of patient confidentiality reasons, and also because my lab is co-owned by uh, American Tech Giant um, with really deep pockets, we travel quite a bit to collaborate with other labs and other research centers. Toronto, as some of you might know, is not perhaps the most tech-centric place in the world, so a lot of people we want to work with are either in California or Texas, uh, Germany, the UK, so that, uh, that presents a lot of opportunities for flying around and a lot of times in uh, quite a bit of luxury and comfort. And because of that, I started uh, just filming things. And that's also to do with the fact that my girlfriend bought me a camera two years ago and said, hey, I should take photos and videos of my travels and uh, share that with her. And I've always had this passion for perhaps uh, making fun little videos here and there. It's, uh, it's been an outlet for my creativity in a day-to-day life that is completely void of that. I mean, do math for the most part of the day and answer emails. So that's not entirely fun. Don't get to dabble in the creative side of the human spirit like you humanities PhD students do.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, can, yeah. can't relate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's where it comes from. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: And speaking of passion, is aviation a passion of yours? If you had to explain, you know, the premise of your channel to someone who has never watched one of your videos before, how would you set the scene for them?
1: Well, I think my channel is more oriented towards uh, premium travel, as pretentious as that sounds, but that is, that is a niche <laughs> I've settled into. Um, so I showcase more of the experience that you get as a passenger, I am absolutely a huge plane nerd. I did uh, my undergrad in aerospace engineering. So into whole, the whole idea of how planes work, how their components work, but as a passenger, you really don't get to experience a whole lot of that. Uh, There's a whole nother world of people who uh, delve deep into how planes work, how aerospace works. And that's really not my audience, I don't think, although there is a huge crossover. But yeah, generally, I just showcase the experience, what you can expect uh, on different airlines in the world. And there is quite a disparity between a lot of uh, carriers around the world. And that's something that is not often shown on the Internet. There's not too much content on it. So I think I've settled into that niche.
0: Though I feel like you're slightly leaning towards Air Canada, aren't you?
1: Well, just by proximity and perhaps Stockholm Syndrome with not many choices, that is... (laughs) Uh, that is what I get to do. Also, they're kind of nice to me. So yeah, that's fair. Uh, when the opportunities arise. Why not?
0: That's fair. Yeah, but looking at the kind of workload that the YouTube channel entails. How do you split your time between? PhD work and research and YouTube.
1: I'm actually quite lucky. Uh, I think I have mentioned this to you before, but I don't have any teaching obligations mm-hmm. which is Fantastic. I have one intern. She doesn't really need much guidance Um she, she's there for a lot of the mundanities of, of the day-to-days, which is great, but uh, I split my day up into three chunks. And I think in one of your previous episodes, you talked about this, where uh, you have these moments of productivity and these other moments of you just can't get any work done. Yeah. And there are ways around it. Um, but for me, making videos has always been quite fun. I get to dictate what I do. And coming out of first year medical school and doing a PhD, not to belittle the workload of a PhD, but oh my God, <laughs> I've suddenly had so much more free time. And um, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to catch up with all my friends who are spending a lot of time playing video games <laughs> and play all these video games with great stories, great plots, great gameplay that I've missed out on in the past couple of years as I was stuck crying in the library. <laughs> um but that only lasted about six months, and I was like, this is incredibly boring. I'm no longer 16 years old. I'm not interested in these anymore. <laughs> and that's when I found this other creative outlet and my time off at home, especially these days when there's not a whole lot of stuff to do outside, given the lockdown that we're experiencing. Um, this has been my fun time. I, I spend a lot of time on making YouTube videos when I have the energy and, and the creative will. <laughs> And the best part is, I am not beholden to anyone to have an upload schedule. So, my uploads are quite sporadic and and I take my time with my videos.
0: Yeah, a lot of what we call the humanities transferable skills goes into that kind of video production, right? Just looking at your graphics and, you know, just the video editing itself. So is that self-taught or did you take any courses or how did that come together?
1: Uh, No, absolutely. The the former, it it is self-taught. I use a couple of um, pieces of software that are uh, perhaps a little more Advanced like 3d rendering software. I used to use um, 3dsx max, which is not a recommendation I have anymore. I switched to Maya but mostly use after effects which does involve a lot of uh, equations, uh, programming to get your expressions right on how to animate things smoothly. And for some people, it might be a little bit difficult to learn. But from someone who comes from an engineering background, it, it's you went through that uh, painful stage of forcing yourself to understand the software a long time ago. And to me, it just seems like a Microsoft Paint, for lack of better comparison. <laughs> it's
0: finally paying off now, all the hard work.
1: <laughs> it, it is quite therapeutic. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It does still take a lot of time, but mm-hmm. there's a satisfaction. It's almost, I describe it as a coloring book to some. Yeah. It, that is what it is to me.
0: Yeah. So how long does it typically take you to finish a video?
1: If we're talking about the average 30-minute video I make, it's about 100 to 120 hours mm-hmm. of just in software time, whether it be editing, uh, making the animations, which take the bulk of the time, uh, script writing, recording my voice. um, yelling at the top of my lungs in the morning so then I don't have these nasally noises that come out of me when I'm doing uh, voiceover. Stuff like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so that takes a good chunk out of your day.
1: (laughs) A little bit, but you can do that while you're doing other things.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, What's your favorite part about it? Is it the graphics? Is it the editing? Is it the actual filming?
1: Obviously, the experience is nice. Filming it is fun. Um, And for a little while, I did get quite stressed out. It's like, oh, I need to get a shot of this or that. But Um, and I think I knew this in the beginning after a while, it became pretty routine for me. I think the most difficult part was getting over the anxiety or the, or the nervousness of holding a sizable camera in public and talking to yourself. And I think that is something a lot of people struggle with and just having to, for lack of better word, the braveness to just start filming things. Um, of course being Canadian, I am, have to be quite cordial ask people for permission um but after that you just you just go for it and i think the biggest hurdle i had was doing that and very comfortable walking down uh like a airport concourse talking to myself through a camera lens and just if people give me weird stares so be it that was probably the hardest part yeah
0: i can imagine it's like my social anxiety would not like that
1: (laughs) and to that i would say mine didn't either but You know, sometimes you just got to go for it, go out of your comfort zone and and you come out on the other side, perhaps a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more comfortable in in certain environments. And that was definitely something that I had to work on, Mm -hmm. but you can definitely work on.
0: Yeah. Are there any fun stories about the vlogging experience, maybe on planes or with other people in the airport? Did people come up to you and ask what you were doing or something like that?
1: At first, I don't think so. Uh... My channel started about two years ago. Uh, in about a month, it will be the two-year anniversary as of the recording of this. Um, in the beginning, not too many questions. Sometimes the cabin crew were like, oh, what are you doing? Are you just doing this for like, you know, yourself, a hobby, or so-and-so? Uh, but these days, with the traction I've been gaining, it's quite often, especially if I uh, travel in North America, there will be one or two people on a trip who recognize me, who come up and say hello and a couple of times i've involved them in my videos because why not Mm -hmm. it's fun for everyone but uh, to highlight that that is absolutely the best part because you get to make a lot of friends Uh, for some reason i have a huge following in denmark and um uh, i was gonna go late last year for work but because of the coronavirus situation that um uh, that engagement got cancelled but there was a group chat of 100 people who wanted to meet up in a bar somewhere and just talk about flying and traveling and all these people just came to be um from from one of my videos and I thought that was super cool.
0: That's brilliant. It creates a community, doesn't it? And
1: Absolutely. Like it
0: yeah. fosters the exchange of like nerdy stuff.
1: Right? You know? It's 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 like a convention of airplane nerds and travel nerds absolutely. <laughs> and you learn so much from those that um, this definitely saved me a lot of money in my personal travels just having those connections and those tips and tricks on how to get upgrades and how to save money stuff like that
0: yeah that is very convenient because obviously in the humanities funding is very sparse um, mm-hmm. so when you talk about you know you have a sponsor of Deep Pockets and you get all of these plane tickets and you get everything for free because it's for work most of us as humanities students will go well we've been flying Ryanair <laughs> I don't know if that rings a bell for you oh
1: yeah no my, <laughs> my back hurts from Ryanair um, <laughs> uh,
0: we've been flying Ryanair and paying out of our own pockets to go to conferences and stuff like that so if you if you could share like one or two tips or tricks for the precarious humanities PhD <laughs>
1: uh, before I do that I will say on the split side of things because I work for a a um a company and our beholden Well, my lab is half owned by them, uh, 49.9%, and I'm beholden to them. We have very few opportunities to publish external papers, i.e. papers Mm. that get uh, uh, put into journals that anyone can read. A lot of times these studies go into a vault somewhere in the deep abyss of a uh, Californian uh, data center. And, um, yeah, I think I only get to publish one paper publicly publicly at the end of my PhD route. Um, so there's definitely downsides. Hmm. So there's that. Uh, a lot of these things are proprietary information and these companies don't wanna share this, like especially big data companies, they don't wanna share this information with other people. Um, so there's it's definitely not all rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> and the other thing is, if you're flying Ryanair to a conference, you get to make your own timelines and, uh, and schedules. When I'm flying, especially over to Europe, that is a evening flight that usually departs anywhere between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. local time from where i'm leaving and arriving at 6 7 a.m. in the morning and you you get to sleep mildly comfortably on an airplane it's business class seats are obviously nicer than economy Mm -hmm. Uh, but you get four or five hours of sleep uh, pretty terrible sleep still and then you're expected to work the entire next day because the schedule is crazy um, and sometimes you don't even get to take a shower before you head into an office or a conference and you're, you're, you're just slaving away. So there's are it's, I would much more prefer a Ryanair flight and then a day off rather <laughs> than some of the experiences I've had to go through. Um, but going back to what you were saying, I see really two avenues. One would be, uh, credit cards, credit cards, uh, especially in the UK, in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, I'm not sure about Ireland, are a lucrative way if you have a good credit score just from the sign-up bonus is to get tons of miles. And the best part is a lot of these miles are redeemable on EasyJet, which I will say is marginally better than Ryanair.
0: Ooh, that's controversial. (laughs) Oh,
1: I know. I think most people who have flown both will agree with me. Um, And that's one way you can definitely save a lot of money. I know a lot of people who make... decent amount of money who go on very luxurious trips just because they take advantage of sign-up bonuses uh, they apply for a lot of credit cards and there are a lot of misconceptions about how that ruins your credit score definitely not true i haven't had the time to dabble in that but if you do that's definitely a way to get around it Um, and the other would be this inverse relationship between time and comfort on an airplane if you're willing to go a little bit out of your way to find city pairs Um, that are perhaps a little bit cheaper than what you would want, then you can definitely do a lot better. Let's say if you wanted to go from Dublin over to Milan, for example, uh, that's definitely a much cheaper, there are definitely much cheaper options, you can fly from, let's say, um, uh, Belfast down to uh, Rome or Naples, and a lot of times you pay half of as much as if you were on that former trip on that the one I mentioned earlier, um, Dublin to Milan, because there aren't that many flights between Dublin and Milan, um, but Naples and Rome are much more popular, and if you're willing to spend an extra hour on a train, you can get a ticket for half as much. So Google Flights is your friend. Definitely use it, and I think many people would, mm-hmm. um, but if you don't, that's that's quite a fun option, and they play around with the map a little bit. That definitely saves you a lot of money because it's a great way of knowing, hey, this destination I want to go to is only 10 kilometers away from another airport. That's much cheaper. Why don't I do that instead?
0: It gives you more of a chance to actually see the country that you're traveling to and be outside the, you know, super touristy spots in mm-hmm. air Do you know?
1: No, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, we know that your channel gained some traction. Um, as of recording this, you're coming onto almost 6 million views. So that's really exciting. What about your PhD cohort and your supervisors? Do they know about your channel? And I suppose... What was the reaction that you got from them?
1: My, I, I don't know how I got this lucky, but my supervisor, my PI, our primary investigator, or, and I think that's what it's called. We just call him our supervisor. Um, he is super cool about it, and the other thing is uh, he's incredibly supportive of absolutely everything we do. He's a sweet old guy. He's a neurosurgeon, and he's very into this whole new uh, techie stuff of of medicine um and the thing is the company i work for in the states uh, i'm gonna like go around saying their name but they're the same company that owns youtube as a platform so my bosses there are elated (laughs) um and the company that owns youtube as a platform they have this idea of you should spend 10 20 of your working time that we pay you to pursue your own hobbies and interests and um this is a manifestation of that in a way and they've been very supportive they've bought me um filming equipment camera equipment and editing equipment for for holidays and my birthday so uh, they think it's kind of cool um i don't think i've shown any signs of it affecting my work so as long as that's that's true i don't think there's too much to be worried about but i'm definitely that's something i'm definitely conscious about and sometimes sometimes the the optics of oh i'm spending so much time doing this or i'm engaging in too many of these opportunities will definitely come or, or perhaps cause problems and i think as long as i'm mindful of that that's fine i've given up a lot of opportunities just because i had work to do and it's not something that really i'm regret regret doing It's it's like hey i have a daytime job i moonlight as a like a youtuber perhaps i can use that term now um but my priorities are pretty pretty straightforward and intact at the moment. It might change. It's
0: interesting uh, just looking at a PhD that is funded by industry and, for example, our humanities PhDs mm-hmm. that are usually unfunded. And if anything, we have to pay fees to do it. So, well, we don't get a monthly salary if we're not teaching. Um, it's really interesting, you know, um, how mm. different that is. So. I can just sense that a couple of our listeners drop their coffee cup right now, just hearing that you get gifts and presents. <laughs> it's,
1: there it's, it are definitely downsides. Like I said, the lack of opportunities to showcase yourself on a publication. Um, and it is, it's not common. I mean, it's more common in, in STEM PhDs. A lot of these are work opportunities where it's just a, it's a secondary incentive. It's like, hey, these people would otherwise be employed... We want these people in our companies, um, this is coming from the perspective of these employers, um, just to sweeten up the deal a little bit, why don't we just say, hey, you can spend four hours a day or like 10, 20 hours a week doing courses or reading papers or going through some kind of machination of learning, uh, and we give you a PhD after four or five years. That ties down this individual, so they don't leave your company. Um, it's you can pay them a little bit less, I suppose, if you throw that in as, as a cherry on top of the can of of the dessert. And and this is something that is common in in the engineering realm of computer science. A lot of the big tech companies, I know, Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, they offer a lot of PhDs to their um, to their employees and um, I just so happened to have come from a school that had a program in this and a f- really good friend of mine who suggested hey you come from a uh, a background where you have a knowledge in math you have a knowledge in engineering and computer programming At the same time you did uh, another degree in genetics which was a whole nother story <laughs> this fits you perfectly and you should definitely apply for it and um, I was even luckier in the sense that I had my supervisor as a professor previously Mm -hmm. and uh, we got along pretty well. So, just happy union.
0: Yeah, I mean, it worked out really well and with your channel as well, it all ties together.
1: It's, yeah, they're all accidents um, that panned out okay, I suppose.
0: Yeah, very happy accidents for sure. Did you expect to get that much traction and I suppose how long did it take for it to pick up after you started?
1: I think it's been like a sigmoidal curve up until now. There was, about six months ago, there was a huge boom in in growth. I think I was getting like 20,000 new subscribers a month. Um, And I don't actually spend a whole lot of time comparing myself to other people, so I had no idea what this meant. I I didn't know how much other YouTubers made. I didn't know how how many monthly views they got. Mm -hmm. And then one day, I think I was in a meeting, actually, Someone said, Hey, congratulations, your video got a million views. I was like, Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't checked it for a couple of days, but cool. Um, that's kind of sweet. And then a little bit later on, someone on the internet, I think, said that, um, What's your opinion on a certain thing? You're the most popular aviation YouTuber in, in Canada. I was like, Am I really? <laughs> and I was like, At that point, I only had like sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 subscribers. I was like, Oh, wow, okay i'm the authority on certain ideas this is this scares me i don't want to deal with this um i don't think i've let uh, let it get to me or influence my my thinking in any way um i don't want to be beholden to my audience i don't want to set any expectations of of how often i'm going to upload if people get to see more of me it's still very much a hobby and I'm mindful of the fact that I have to go back to med school. Yeah, I want to. There's, there's no way I went through all that work to get in and not do it. But that, that is three years of not being able to produce content. Yeah, uh, three years of the channel going on sabbatical or hiatus, however you want to call it. So uh, I don't want to let people down.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we talked about your audience for a small bit before, and um. I wonder, do you think that the pandemic had an impact on that? Um, Just, you know, people's craving to travel and not being able to travel and living, well, vicariously through your vicarious Voyager channel.
1: Um, Yeah, once again, that's kind of a pretentious name, but that was one that... (laughs) We
0: do like a good alliteration.
1: Oh, no, I love alliterations. Um, (laughs) Which is kind of a nerdy thing, I suppose. But uh, I think my mom mentioned that she likes my videos in the way that she gets to live vicariously through them yeah uh not being able to travel quite uh, a lot so i was like okay i'm gonna just go with this channel name for now and see how it goes and i get a lot of comments sometimes i get really lengthy emails about how people are are super happy to watch my videos they have it either plane in the background or they sit through it with a mug of coffee and they get their travel fix and i was like okay well that perhaps it's therapeutic for some people but i think it's played into the name of the channel a little bit and still having content to create these days um is definitely an advantage i feel that yeah. i am undeserving of compared to some other people who do this for a living um and they're unable to travel or they don't have a good enough reason to um this year my, my work is still sending me to to certain places and uh not a lot of people are traveling especially not a lot of the other content creators are traveling so then naturally you get advantage of still having content to produce that's definitely helped and i think that's this year helped a lot more with people's need need or want to travel and um uh, i'm getting emails from certain places certain airlines like hey some i you uploaded a video about us and suddenly we have all these people booking with us we just wanted to say thank you stuff like that sometimes they give me a gift card i don't want to accept those because then then that's a that's a that's a yeah
0: you're kind of tied to that's a
1: slippery slope yeah
0: (laughs) yeah for sure And that leads very nicely into the next question that I have about the benefits of YouTube. We touched on you meeting some of your subscribers and that's really nice and just creating that community. But also I suppose in terms of lucrativeness of YouTube, if you think about it as a side hustle of your PhD and maybe if a humanities PhD has a really good idea, is this a lucrative way or is it, yeah, I suppose, what are the exact benefits?
1: Not until this year uh well up until this year i didn't really think too much about it this year as i've grown quite a bit and are getting a steady number of monthly viewers i'm beginning to perhaps entertain the thought of hey maybe this could be more than a side hustle it's mm-hmm. making quite a bit of money it's also made me reconsider contributing to certain youtubers patreons when i think okay wow you have this many number of views and just cross-referencing my number of views you make so much money Uh, (laughs) i don't really think you need my patreon support anymore despite loving your content um yeah I, I, i listen to a lot of engineering podcasts on youtube i watch a lot of documentary videos and youtubers um but yeah that's it's it's uh it's a lot of it was surprising yeah and now I'm at a position where hey if work doesn't pay for travel I could easily use the YouTube money to pay for um, expensive tickets and that's something that was that I thought of the other day I was like wow this is kind of crazy um, at the same time I get almost daily emails from certain brands for sponsorships none of which I've really um, accepted uh just because hey i don't want to be beholden to anyone to have an upload schedule and it just doesn't feel like i need to integrate like a squarespace ad <laughs> or endorse NordVPN at the moment <laughs> or even into the future yeah um but i think the most fun is a lot of airlines will say hey we have a new event going on we have like a like an unveiling we have a new airplane would you like to come along I uh, recently got a communique from Airbus saying, hey, we have a delivery of a new plane to a certain customer. Would you like to come along for the delivery flight? And they'll fly me out and they'll fly me back. But unfortunately, I had work, so I couldn't do that. Uh,
0: so work got in the way of the side hustle.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, but on the flip side, and this was kind of uh, illustrated to me on quite recently a Lufthansa flight I took, uh, they figured out who I was and they emailed me after I made my booking, and um, I definitely felt like I got treated a lot better than some of the other passengers, perhaps not to speaking to the level of service, but I was given a lot more attention. They let me get on the plane a good 20 minutes before everyone else, and they showed me absolutely everything, and I, I don't feel like that was as objective of an experience Mm -hmm. as it could have been. Um, Especially here in Canada, the other major airline we have, WestJet, they seem to be very happy with uh, influencers, as they call them, or social media promoters who get on their plane and uh, they get treated perhaps a little bit differently. And with a name like mine, it's kind of hard to stay under the radar.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's very recognizable. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I've been dealing with that. But for the most part, I think as long as they don't make a fuss, as long as the airlines, uh, as long as I make it clear to whoever is writing to me, hey, I don't want to be treated differently, don't tell anyone that I'm coming, yeah. then I still have that that objectiveness, perhaps, in the video. Yeah, yeah
0: for sure. But loads of benefits, it sounds like.
1: It, it's, once again, it's also a slippery slope, but um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it does take quite some time to catch up with emails and have this mm-hmm. you know, public relations side of the channel as well, right? Do you count that into your time or do you try to stay away from that? Because, you know, well, we all know what it's like. It impedes on your productivity, doesn't it? No,
1: absolutely. Um, thankfully, my intern actually goes through them sometimes and she's like, hey, you should do this one or that one. She's <laughs> she's pretty fun and she's involved in my personal life, perhaps a little too much. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Mm-hmm. She's great. Um, but uh, I usually go through my emails in the morning and there aren't that many of them that I don't have enough time to do so. So as I'm making coffee... I will go through them and mark the ones I want to respond to. But uh, yeah, you, you come to realize as an adult, I think, not only as a PhD candidate, but also as an adult, and emails are the bane of existence.
0: Oh, they are a beast for sure, yeah. <laughs>
1: it takes way too much time.
0: Definitely, yeah. yeah. And speaking of productivity, you're traveling a lot. You have lab work, you have the YouTube channel. And I mean, especially traveling so much. How do you stay productive and focused when you're on the road or when you prepare for a trip or even after a trip?
1: Mm, um, I I definitely have gotten a lot better at that recently. Uh, Coffee is your friend, I think. (laughs) Anything stronger than that is... Uh, maybe not something I would dabble in, but some people definitely do. I've seen perhaps, and coming from a medical standpoint, I think coffee is great. Um, but then the other thing is you get to know yourself. And I think over the past couple of years, I've gotten to know myself when I'm most productive and for different people at different times. And in a previous episode of your podcast, you've also touched on that, um, and I think I figured out my peak performance times and my the troughs in my performance graph.
0: Yeah. So what are they?
1: Well, in the morning after my first cup of coffee, mm-hmm. and usually my only cup of coffee, I, I'm pretty good. I'm like a stab rat. <laughs> so anywhere from 8 to 9 a.m. or later, ten eleven if I wake up later, um, I can usually work nonstop until lunch or whenever I'm hungry. Yeah. Be that noon or 4 p.m. Um, and that's, that's when I put in, that's when I give myself the bulk of my work, like if I have a mathematical uh, problem I want to solve, if I want to write a couple of pages of code and test them, um, draw out a couple of diagrams on how I want to structure certain algorithms, you new know, networks, or, or read up on a new idea or learn a new piece of software or programming language, or library, this might be foreign to some of you, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But then usually after half my first meal and my gut is busy digesting everything and the blood is drawn away from my brain then that's the first slump of the day usually the only slump of the day i am not productive whatsoever in the afternoon yeah i'll be the first to say that before the pandemic hit and we were working from home which luckily we get to do because most of our work is on a computer um uh, i would just dip out i would just say okay bye i'm done and leave at 1 p.m and then just go home take a nap watch tv or uh do something else because i know i won't be productive and then after a little bit i'll force myself to go through emails because they don't honestly take a whole lot of brain power you can have a youtube video or podcast on in the background Mm -hmm. um but typically after dinner i'm once again very productive i think i am a night owl actually and uh yeah so after dinner until i get tired i can do peak level stuff again whether it be math or uh doing animations for my videos or thinking of Mm a script, stuff like that. So I think you you can kind of budget your time. It's like, hey, if I get an email, I won't touch that in the morning because I know I'll deal with that later. I want to dedicate this peak performance time to something a little bit more challenging. And on the road, I try to maintain that as much as possible. And I've gone into this idea of pre-jet lagging myself. Um, So if I'm going to Europe, I will start trying to sleep a lot earlier or force myself to get up. You just have to be uh, strategic about these things. Yeah. Um, And coffee. Just ask for coffee and tea and answer emails on a plane or in a hotel room or things like that. Um, Or if I'm in Europe, I would love to go outside and sit outside of a cafe and just work on my laptop because that is an environment we don't necessarily get here. Too many cars, too much noise, too many homeless people screaming in the background.
0: Mm -hmm. Social commentary. A
1: little bit. Welcome to North America, if, if that's not something you're familiar with. (laughs)
0: I mean, you're multitasking, and that's something that a lot of us PhDs do in general, Uh, maybe STEM, maybe humanities, and we can relate to that. So how do you manage to compartmentalize all of these things? Because I know for myself that if I know that I have a meeting in the afternoon and I have to do other work before that, um, like do research or finish a paper, it's really difficult to stay focused on just one thing when everything else is kind of lurking in the background, just waiting, you know, especially when it's something important. So how do you manage to compartmentalize like, okay, I might be excited about editing this bit of the video, but I have to pace myself and do something else first. Does that come naturally to you? Or have you learned some techniques that made it easier for you to focus on, I suppose, one thing? Or do you focus on multiple things and not just one thing?
1: I'm not particularly great at that, but a couple of tricks I've learned is to have two things you want to do at the same time. And if both of them don't require 100% focus, then perhaps you can do one for a little bit. And then once you're feeling like procrastinating, go do the other thing. Mm -hmm. And then once you're fed up with that other thing, go back and reverse procrastinate and do the first thing. It's definitely a lot of uh, something I see a lot of people do. Um, Another trick I do is just to throw my phone away because (laughs) that's distracting. And then get a piece of notebook paper and just write down the tasks that you want to do in the order of priority that you... um, You need to do them, and um, I think a lot of the, the background noise that you've mentioned of things that you have to get on, that contributes a lot of stress, and as your stress level increases, the noises in the background get louder, which impede in your ability to do whatever you're focusing on at the moment. And I think that's just like something you learn to deal with from uh, on a personal basis. For me, that usually I would go do chores for a little bit, do some dishes, put in a load of laundry, fold some clothes just to give myself a little bit of a break. And that's also something I learned from studying. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with the Pomodoro effect or that, that, that idea of you take a certain number of minutes in an hour or half an hour out of studying and then just do little chunks of time um so i like to just interject my focus with um chores or if i'm having a particularly bad week uh, i take a day off yeah luckily i'm able to just say hey i don't want to work friday i don't want to work monday i'm just gonna go use some of the points i racked up and go to a hotel (laughs) or spa or just sit at home and watch tv or go for a really long walk that usually helps. Uh, the downside of that is I spend a lot of time on weekends doing things when I really should take a day out. Um, yeah. I, I think that like taking one day of the week off at least, completely off and doing relaxing things that require minimal brain utilization is definitely helpful, mm-hmm. uh, especially as I've gotten older. That's <laughs> definitely something I feel like I need more. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I don't give myself enough time to do that because... Like at 9 p.m., I don't want to do anything anymore. And from 9 until whatever time I go to bed, those four hours, I'm, I'm productive. And I have to make up for that at some point.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we spoke about the toxic work-life balance that is part of the PhD and how we manage that. And I suppose that's a nice segue into our last questions. Knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give your first-year PhD self looking back at the experience that you've had so far?
1: I think was the third and- uh the first piece of advice is you don't have to put a hundred percent into everything you need to budget because you don't have a thousand percent. you only have your one hundred percent once you know what that is, uh certain things like email, you could really just not think too hard on them. yeah, you don't have to go back and proofread them three times. <laughs> I don't think it makes that much of a difference yeah um. Another thing is is uh, you need to manage your time a little bit better. And I definitely wasn't very good at this. I would work uh, or do focus, thing- focus on things for a good 10 hours during the day and be completely burnt out and then just stress myself out for the rest of the day because I don't have enough energy to do anything. And at the same time, I'm stressed out by the fact that I'm not doing anything. Yeah, um, And that stress relief is definitely something that my first-year PhD self didn't handle very well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, also, I tried too hard in my first year to get everyone to like me. I think I have achieved that. <laughs> but at the same time, I could have been a little bit more relaxed and more chill. Yeah. Um, uh, but there is a lot of growing up to do, and a lot of it comes with time. And uh, the only thing I said that I think my first year self did was perhaps run a little too much, spend too much time thinking that running is the best way to relieve stress. Okay. Which it was for me, but... Um, i spent way too much time just in the morning running like two three hours and then have to take a shower the downside of that is one day when i decided to stop running um just because of the way my metabolism was was completely changed overnight like i just gained so much weight all of a sudden which wasn't helpful (laughs) so (laughs) those are the the last one a bit more specific to myself but the first couple perhaps could be used in some kind of universal context yeah but hey if you got into a PhD program. You're obviously organized enough, good enough at academia that uh, you will struggle for a little bit, but you'll probably have it figured out. Yeah. And another thing is you got into a PhD. This is most often your end goal. You don't have to be the best of the best. You just have to try to learn as much as you can Yeah. and have a good time, uh, make a lot of contacts, make a lot of friends who will help you throughout your career in the future. And at the end of the day, really, you just have to pass. What's the worst that could happen if, if you... If you just get your dissertation or just get your paper published, that's it. You're done. It doesn't have to be spectacular. Yeah. As long as you're happy with it, then you're good. There's, there's really not much else afterwards. No one's going to hire you really based off of your grades in a few classes that you take or your or your teaching uh, uh, surveys that you get from your students. Yeah. Uh, you, as long as you have those three letters uh, <laughs> at the end of your name, you're good. And that's something I think a lot of people fail to see coming out of a competitive environment in their undergrad, in their master's program, in their high school, secondary school. Um, And that's that's a what's the word? That's a paradigm shift once you're in the last couple of stages of your academic life and savor it because you you won't go back to academia after this. You're going to have to work in whatever you do, and uh, you won't have that structured, sheltered experience anymore.
0: For sure, yeah, you have to enjoy the moment, and it's very yeah. easy to forget that when you're so wrapped up in it, day-to-day, and potentially even the toxicity of academia.
1: Oh, I'm just saying, like, it's uh, what, what, when you're done with your PhD, during your PhD, it is almost a swan song to, to for most people, almost two decades of school. And life is going to be tough after that. Uh, I'm not sure about that because I'm still stuck in it for another decade at least. But um, going into a work environment definitely, is definitely a change, and you will miss a lot of things about the structured academic life. and. Uh, you have to learn to savor it a little bit. I'm sure you have more because you're actually done with yours. Mm. That is the envy coming out of me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, all I can say is that there is a light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Before we close, is there anything else that you want to add or that I haven't asked you about?
1: Um, no, not really. Thank you for the conversation. This was this was a whole lot of fun. I, I really like your podcast. There, There's something that like... Oh, thank you. They're kind of niche. They they're not too many people talking about the the the, the lifestyle that you get in a yeah in a late twenties academic life because um, it's 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 different. A lot of yeah, I'm sure for a lot of people who are doing their PhDs, many of their friends aren't, and they're getting ahead with life. They're having kids. Yeah, um, they're getting promoted at work and stuff like that. So having this kind of environment to talk among your peers uh, regardless of where you are is is really nice and just want to say thank you for that
0: yeah thank you so much i mean it's a very specific time in our lives and not a Mm -hmm. lot of people can relate to that Mm
1: -hmm. so if you're
0: not in the system you would never understand what it's like Mm -hmm. so i think Yeah, you touched on a really, really important point there, and I think that was one of the main goals of the show, to create a space for people to see that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Because PhDs can also be very isolating, so we're all sitting in our, you know, little ivory towers, and I said it in a previous episode, it's all about building bridges to connect our little individual ivory towers.
1: No, absolutely, yeah.
0: Alright, well, thank you Tizen for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me um, about your PhD and your YouTube side hustle. Tizen's YouTube channel is called Vicarious Voyager, as we've said before. Make sure to give his videos a watch, they're really great escapism, I love watching them during lunch or breakfast just to get my vicarious travel fix. You can also find him on Instagram at Tizen and that is spelled T-I-E-Z-H-E-N-G. And we will see you again in two weeks time. This episode of PhD Penning was written and produced by me, Anna Mala. You can find the show on Instagram and Twitter at Pod, or send me an email to phdpenningpod at gmail.com. If you like the content, rate the show five stars in your favorite podcast app or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com Slash PhD penning pot.